If you've got your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 25 through 34. If you don't have your Bible, it's all right. It's going to be on the screen behind, a, uh, behind me. Um, but if you do have it, uh, please turn there. And this is going to be where we're going to dig in this morning. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. How many of you know, thank you, Jesus. I appreciate that. Right out the gate. Uh, it's easier said than it is done. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he, and they asked this question. I think it's an amazing question. He said, aren't you worth more than they? Aren't you worth more than they? And I don't know if you're New with us for the first time, stepping into church for the first time this morning. If you don't hear anything else out of this message today, I want you to know that there's an intrinsic worth over your life. And we know that because of the price that Jesus would pay for your life. The fact that somebody would give their life, the totality of who they are for you and for me says that there is a worth over your life. And so if you have breath in your lungs today, if you still have health in your body today, there is a plan, there is a purpose, there is a reason, there is a rhyme over your life this morning. And I want you to be encouraged with that today. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? You ever tried that before? You ever tried worrying to see if you could add some stuff to your life? Doesn't work. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Verse 33, here's the, the anchor to this this moment, these few sentences here that I actually think if you take this piece of scripture, you could read verse 33 and 34 that we're about to read first and then work backwards to see how it's done. And we're gonna do that today. But this is the anchor verse that says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all. Every shout, all. all. Come on, every shout, all. all. All these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own. Once again, thank you, Jesus, for pointing that out. How many of you agree with him? Each day has, a, has its own trouble. Come on. So today as we continue on in our series, The Violence of Good, I want to speak to you from the subjects weddings, registries, and chicken wings. They laughed in the first service too. As we deal with the issue of what it is that we seek after in life. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, it has the ability to transform us from the inside out. And so God, right now I just pray that your word would anchor our hearts today, that it would transform our minds today, that it would renew our minds today, God. And so we open our heart to your voice today. We open our mind to your voice today. We open our ears to your voice today. And I pray that these words would be your words, not mine. That we'd hear your word for our life, over our life, in our life. And so we love you, we worship you, we give this time over to you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Yeah. Amen. Show of hands, where are all of our married couples at? If you're married, put your hands up. All right, lots of you today. If you are single, put your hands up right now. Come on, look around. Singles, this is your moment. Come on. <laughs> this is it right here. <laughs> Some of you are like, please don't let me put my hand down. Hey. <laughs> 
So singles, just hear this story. This applies to, uh, a lot to, the, our, to our married couples in here because they'll, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, I was, the other day, um, not the other day, but a little while back, my daughter found uh, an album with our wedding photos in it. And uh, I don't know, married couples, have you ever like gone back and looked at your wedding album? And uh, Shiloh was looking at it and she points and she's like, who's that? And I was like, oh, that's me and your mom. <laughs> Aging well. Um, so... And I went back and we started looking at it and I was reminiscing and I've looked at it a few times and I was like, man, just remembering back that. How many of you remember your wedding day? Like your wedding day. Less hands than the actual married couples in here. <laughs> Fantastic. That's good news. <laughs> we have counseling after service. Um, so I was reminiscing, thinking about our wedding and looking at those pictures and everything like that. We've been married for 14 years now, 14 years now. And uh, it's been an awesome 14 years. It's been a crazy 14 years. And I was thinking about our wedding, and our wedding had a lot, like, a lot going on with it. And I love I loved doing the wedding stuff. Uh, Erica says every now and then, she's like, hey, I think we should redo our wedding. And I'm like, is it that bad? Like, <laughs> she's like, yeah, I think we should do our wedding again. I'm like, why? And she goes, Pinterest. <laughs> I just want to redo our wedding so we can have a Pinterest wedding. I've been, uh, and, and that's funny because what goes along with that is mass degrees of stress. I'm uh, working with a, a couple right now in pre-marriage. They're getting ready to get married in April, and I'm going to be doing their wedding. And uh, we do this stress profile in the leading up, and uh, you can see what's going on in this couple through their stress profile. And one of the biggest stressors is the actual wedding. And how many of you agree with me? Like, the wedding's a big deal, supposedly, right? I actually try to counsel couples to, like, forego the wedding, just get married on the side of a rock and get on with life. Like, let's go for it. Don't go into debt. Don't spend the money. And... And we had this moment in our, in, in leading up to our wedding where we were picking all the things out. And Erica's like, I want Frank Sinatra. And I want to dance to that type of like music underneath like twinkling lights and do all these things. And I was like, well, like I want some things too. And she's like, oh no, uh-uh. No. This is actually not about you. Um, <laughs> how many, come on, all the ladies, you know what I'm talking about. She's like, yeah, this isn't really about you, so you just need to calm down, bucko. And I was like, okay, give me two. Like, give me two things. She's like, okay, two things. And I said, so the two things that I want in my wedding is Michael Jackson's Beat It. Yay. Yeah. And I don't even dance. And I want chicken wings. All right? And I want <laughs> classing it up. And so... So she's like, really? No, that doesn't kind of go with the vibe. And I was like, no, babe, you said two things. I'm exercising authority here. Two things, chicken wings and Michael Jackson. That's what I want in my wedding. And so she, she said, okay. So we had a dance off with like our wedding party, like guys against girls. And the guys won because we're awesome. And so um, and Michael Jackson's beat it. And then we had these chicken wings. And the whole entire time, we had 400, we had almost 400 people at our wedding. Yeah, it was nuts. And so we're doing like the whole wedding shake and like everybody's coming around. Hi, we love you. Congratulations. You? And you're answering the same question over and over and over again, right? And then the married couples, you'll know what I'm talking about. You try to escape all that and go eat food, right? Because you, you haven't eaten since like 9.30 in the morning, right? Everything's going wild. And, and so you're trying to get back to the table. And the minute, like I kid you not, the minute you're about to get food in your mouth, somebody starts hitting the glass. And like by the 54th time, they've chimed the glass to get you to make out in front of everybody. I'm like, stop chiming the glass. I just want my food. <laughs> and so we go through the whole night. We get into our car. Erica and I had got her set up in our apartment. We were going to stay the night there first night. And then we were going to roll out on our honeymoon the next night. So we walk up the stairs. It was on the third, 
third floor, walk up the stairs, cross the threshold, the most beautiful moment that you could think that you have, cross the threshold into your new apartment. It's just like you want to gaze, the light hits her just perfectly. She's like, oh, she's such a beautiful bride, everything like that. You know what I was thinking when I crossed that threshold? I didn't get my chicken wings. (laughs) At all. Out of everything in our wedding, do you know what I remember the most? That night, after we crossed the threshold of our apartment, we ordered pizza. Come on, somebody. We ordered pizza. It was the most romantic moment that, like, and I still remember, I don't remember much about my wedding anymore. Like, I remember I do and pizza. Everything in between is a blur. And I tell you that story for this reason right here. Because there was a lot of hype and there was a lot of buildup and there was a lot of excitement over the things that we were seeking after in our wedding. But the problem was is that my experience didn't meet up with my expectations and things turned on me. I don't know if you've ever been there in life before where your experience doesn't meet up with your expectations. Have you ever been in life before where you were seeking after something so hard, you're putting so much energy, so much investment, so much time into it, and the very thing that you were seeking didn't come along? It didn't happen the way that you wanted it to happen. And here's what Jesus is saying to us. Many, many of us have read this piece of scripture, and we've heard it a bunch of different ways and coming from a bunch of different directions. But I think one of the greatest issues that Jesus is trying to deal with right here for your life and for my life is that we have a seeking problem. What we seek after, we struggle with many times. Many of us are looking for things that don't help us in life. They don't give us what we're actually needing. They may give us what we think we want, but it's not giving us what we actually need. I mean, if you'd agree with me, we seek for things to find joy in them, but the minute we get that, we realize that joy is not found in it. We seek after things to find hope, and then we get into it, and we realize this isn't giving me hope. We get into relationships hoping that it's going to bring confidence to us and it doesn't bring confidence. We think it's going to bring us fulfillment and it doesn't bring us fulfillment. Jobs, money, profiles, popularity, likes, whatever you want to say. How many of you know that at the end of the day, it runs short and shallow, but we're seeking after these things. And so I want to challenge us in our seeking today. I want to challenge us with what we seek after today because I've come to realize that I can have all the things I want without the kingdom of God in my life and I feel like I have nothing. Yet I can seek the kingdom of God and have nothing and feel like I have everything that I need. Come on, somebody. So what we're dealing here is is with what it looks like to have a kingdom mindset and a kingdom sightline. See, the violence of good takes place in our lives as we develop a heart, a mind, and a life that seeks after Jesus in the way of his kingdom. We're pivoting this afternoon. So we get over our motion offering. Over the next four to six weeks, we're looking forward to Easter. One of the most violent acts of good that ever took place was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But here's the problem. Many of us, we seek to do good. But I feel challenged because as we seek to do good, we have to reorient the the things that we seek. If we want to seek to do good, we've got to change what it is that we seek after. So this morning, I I want to deal with what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to look at three truths that Jesus establishes about this reality in our lives. But I need you to work with me this morning, so come on, shout number one. First one is this, is we have to learn to frame the future with faith. I frame the future with faith. Come on, we shout faith today. We shout faith like you're faith-filled. 
There we go. This is what he says in Matthew 6.30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? What's Jesus dealing with right here? He's saying the things that we seek after, we've got to reorient because a lot of the things were, are tangible. They're, they're, they're right here. We can touch and grab them. But the problem is that many of us don't frame our future with faith. And how we frame our future is of the utmost importance. I learned this as I've had kids. We've got three kids now. Parents, you'll know what I'm talking about. How many of you know that how you frame the future for your kids is of the utmost importance? especially when it comes to letting them down. And what do I mean by that? Well, the other day, my kids, we told them in the morning what was gonna happen in the afternoon. And that's a big mistake in our household because we framed our kids' future a certain way. They believed that so-and-so was coming over to the house that afternoon. And through a series of random circumstances, we got the call, we're not coming over tonight. And that's when Erica and I turned, like we just went pale and our stomach started to turn and we're like, who's gonna tell the kids? Because we knew in that moment, the way that we framed this next moment in our household was gonna be the difference between a nice adherence and a good afternoon to what was happening or nuclear meltdown in our household. And so we had to tactfully move in there and try to reframe their future because they saw it one way and we were about to have them experience it in another way. And see, the problem that many of us face is that we seek certain things in life in order to frame our future, except when we step into the future, our expectations are not met and our worlds seem to crumble. But what happens if we could frame our future based upon the faith that we have in Jesus? Framing our future, They're like voguing right now. <laughs> Frame the future with some faith. What if we framed our future with faith? Not blind faith, not the type of faith that just kind of wanders haphazardly through the world around us, but the type of faith that is anchored in the nature and the character and the goodness of God. This is my framework for my future. This is the faith statement for my future. And as I get to know who Jesus is, oh, I look forward to the future. I frame the future with greater hope and greater understanding that what he has for me is greater than what's behind me. And so I trust him with some faith. Now we read this taking place in the life of somebody that you would think had tons of faith. His name was John the Baptist. If you haven't heard about him, the Bible tells us that he prepared the way before Jesus. This guy was a crazy guy. He would shout and he would proclaim judgment and change and the Messiah's coming and people were semi-scared of him and he was a little bit nutty. We find him in prison at this point in the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Watch what happens. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message, texted somebody. He said, yo, are you the one who is to come? And then he asked, or should we expect someone else? Think about that. Are you the one is to come or should we expect someone else? This is what Jesus replies to him. He throws out a tweet. And he says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. 
The dead are raised and the poor are told the good news. How many of you know that that is an awesome tweet right there? If you saw that, you'd be like, okay, pumped. And then he throws this little caveat on the backside. And this has always puzzled me as I've read scripture because you think about all these good things that you're reading and then watch what he says. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What was he doing? He was dealing with John's heart because John's expectation of the kingdom that was coming in and through the Messiah, Jesus, was very different than what Jesus was doing in real time. See, John thought things were gonna look different. John was susceptible to offense because what he was seeking after looked different than the reality that he was facing personally and that which Jesus was doing practically. John's framework for the future and the presence of the kingdom of God was largely built around the idea that the one to come, Jesus, was going to look like judgment, political repositioning, wealth distribution, and national reformation. But the problem was is that Jesus didn't come and bring any of those. Jesus came and he brought the good news. And John was frustrated by it. You ever wanted God to do one thing? <laughs> and he did it another way? And then you thought you could give him words about it? You know what I'm saying? Like, have you ever thought, like, many times I think we go into prayer this way. We believe, like, okay, if I pray this way, if I give God these prayers, like, God, this is my prayer, bop, 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 and then just start, like, machine gunning him towards him. And because we have certain words and certain phrases that we use, and we feel like if we put it in old English and put an accent on it, like, God's going to listen more to it, right? Oh, God! And, like, and all of a sudden he hears it more. No, he doesn't hear it more. Why? Because God's got his way of doing it. We've got to remember that God is God. We are not. And so Jesus tells John, blesses the one who's not offended. So let me throw it at us this way. I think one of the greatest reasons that we are offended by God so many times in our lives is because what we're seeking after doesn't match up with his will. We're seeking after all of these other things. And God's like, just, just seek me and your sight line will change. Who are you seeking? What are you seeking after? See, framing our future with faith, the future of our marriages, the future of our finances, the future of our kiddos, our jobs, our health, our purpose, even down to the things like our state, our nation, our world. Because the reality is that for many of us, the framing of these things tends to be worry, fear, negativity, pessimism, cynicism, jadedness. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Just turn on Facebook. I want to say this today. What we try to do is dress worry up in order to try and make it something that it's not. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Don't dignify worry by giving it another designation. You ever try to dress worry up, put a suit on it, call it something else so that we can justify it? Worry's worry. Don't put a tuxedo on worry <laughs> to try to make worry better than it is. Worry is worry. Let's give Jesus our worry. Let's give him the designation of the one who is over all things. Let's give him the designation of the one who is in all things. Let's give him the designation who has the power to do everything that we know we are not capable of. Let's give him the designation of the one that overcomes all our fear, all our worry, all our anxiety, everything that we are frustrated about. Come on, he's the one that's over all those things. 
So we gotta give it to him. We gotta seek first. How do we do this? We seek first the kingdom. We seek first him. How do we do it? By framing our future with faith. Come on, we shout faith. Faith. Number two, the second one is this, is that we have to desire to be constant in our pursuit of his presence. We have to be we have to have a desire to be constant in our pursuit of his presence. For many of us, it goes like this. Seek first the kingdom of Snowbird and all these powder turns will be added unto me. Come on. Seek first the kingdom of the golf course and all these birdies will be added unto me. Seek first the kingdom of Moab and all of these mountain bike turns will be added unto me. Come on, seek first the kingdom of Netflix and all of my binge watching will be added unto me. Seek first the kingdom of Facebook and all this anxiety will be added unto me. Seek first the kingdom of Instagram and all of these likes will be added unto me. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things. Well, yeah, what are you seeking after? What are you seeking after? See, we have the desire to be constant in our pursuit of his presence. There's a big difference between God's presence being everywhere and myself being in his presence. See, many of us would theologically ascribe to the idea that God is everywhere. We'd get down with that. The problem is, is that in our adherence to that theological line that God is everywhere is that we tend to become apathetic in our relationship with him. We say, if God's everywhere, I don't need to do anything. But there's a massive difference between God being everywhere and me being in his presence. And this is a designation that we have to to understand. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a big difference between being the father in my house and the father of my house. See, when I'm the father in my house, it simply means that my presence is there. But being the father of my house, oh, then my kids feel, interact with, and experience the nature of my heart and the nurture of my hand. There's a difference. How many of you know that I can be in my house, but if I'm on my phone ignoring everybody else or on my court, I may be in my house, but I am not of my house. My kids can be running around, my wife can be running around, all life and everything can be happening around me, but if I'm distracted, I can, I can be there, but not there. And I think that's how many of us approach God sometimes. And the thing about it is, is that when we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it means that there's a constant pursuit to be in his presence. See, my kids right now, and I hope always, so desire to be around me right now. And I, and I love that. They love being around us, they love being around me, but more than that, not because I'm at home. No, they desire to do things with me, play, interact, touch, speak, and be challenged. Why? Because they crave their father. Because they know that in the presence of their father, they don't have to worry about what they have or don't have because their father will always make sure they have what they need. Why? Because they're in dad's presence. So they constantly pursue to be in our presence. My presence, Erica's presence. Why? Because they know they don't have to worry about anything when they're in our presence. When Erica was gone in India for 10 days, not once, not once, did my kids wake up and be like, hey, dad, so um, when's mom gonna come home so we can like be fed? <laughs> they didn't do that. Like, hey, hey dad, like when, when's mom gonna come home so we don't have to leave the house, right? And just our underwear, because we don't have clean clothes, 
Like, when, when's mom going to come home so it's no longer Lord of the Flies in the parish household? They didn't ask that question. Why? They knew that they were going to have food. They knew that they were going to have clothing. They knew that they were going to have a roof over their head. They knew that they were going to get to school and get back from school. They knew that they were going to have everything that they needed. Why? Because they were with their dad. And so they pursued my presence. And I wonder if as a church, we can be the type of church that pursues the presence of God. Why? Because in his presence, there's fullness of joy fullness of hope, fullness of peace, fullness of everything that we need in him. Can we be that church? We'll be a presence church. So we got to seek to be in his presence. That's why we worship the way that we do. The presence, the presence of God is not in the notes. Hmm. <laughs> That's why I don't play guitar, guys. <laughs> The presence of God is not in the, in the actual singing that, that's coming out. The presence of God is when the church, two or three, are gathered together. Check this out. The presence of God is his promise. He said when two or three gather together, I am in your midst. He didn't say what the two or three were doing. Did you know God could be in the middle of your Settlers of Catan game? Four of you will get that, but I'm a nerd like that. Why? Because where two or three are gathered who are pursuing Jesus with everything that they are, he can be there. Some of us think that we need church worship to experience the presence of God. You know how weird that would be if the worship team just showed up in your bedroom <laughs> every day that you needed the presence? That doesn't work that way. You don't want these guys leaning over you. There's nothing in the fire standing next to me. Like, you don't want that. <laughs> So what do you do? Just turn your phone on. You lift your hands. God, today in this moment, before I do anything else, I want to be in your presence. I want to leave this bedroom in your presence. I want to walk through this hallway in your presence. I want to walk into my kitchen in your presence. I want to walk into my workplace in your presence. I want to walk into lunch in your presence. I want to walk into my school in your presence. I want to walk into that situation in your presence. I want to walk into my marriage in your presence. I want to parent in your presence. I want to do everything I do in your presence. we got to pursue him with everything that we are. And number three, come on, everybody shout number three. Last one is this, is that we have to build our lives through kingdom arrangement and Christ-centered order. This is where we kick. Because many of us don't like the terms Christ-centered arrangement and order. So Matthew 6, he says, but seek, here's the word, we shout first. First, what's he establishing? He's establishing an order in our lives. Seek first. Eric and I, we have some systems in our household. We don't have a ton of systems, but we've got some systems in our household. And one of those systems is when our kids go to bed. And we are crazy about this fact. So Eliana, my youngest, she's 18 months. She goes to bed at 6.30 at night. It's when we put her into bed. And we've got her so plugged into this system that at about that time, if she goes past 6.30, you'll start to watch her. She will zone out. She'll rub her eyes. But this is what our child does when you lay her down to bed because she has this system in play in her life. You will lay her down to bed and she goes like this, bye-bye. <laughs> and we walk out. That's it, bye-bye, bye-bye. In other words, get out, I wanna sleep. 
Our other two kiddos, our oldest kiddos, they're in bed at 7.30. And they'll fight us a little bit and they'll get up and I need water and rub my back and sing me a song and read the thesaurus. Like they... <laughs> we have smart children. Um, but they're in bed at 7.30. Why? Because we have an order in our house. This order helps the parish household run. Because when we go over those limits... When we step, here it is, when we step out of order, my house becomes chaos. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Kids melt down, everybody wants to fight, right? Kids are clawing up the walls. Everybody like is in danger. <laughs> Why? Because we stepped out of order. And the problem is, is that for many of us, we seek things that are outside of God's order for our life. We seek things that are out of his order. And the problem is, is that we get mad at God for it. But let's go back to what he says. He's a good father. And because he's a father who speaks authoritatively in our life, he wants to establish order, not chaos. See, God's a God of order. He loves things to be done well with excellence and in, in its proper way. When we step out of order, come on, how many of you have experienced this with me? Show hand. How many of you have experienced doing things out of order and it didn't go well? Right? We talk about Ikea furniture all the time around here. Because theologically, we believe like Satan is demons, Ikea furniture. Cats. Just playing, just playing. If you love cats in here, we love you, okay? But have you ever put Ikea furniture together out of order? Man. Your life will be forever changed if you do this. If you put Ikea furniture together out of order, be prepared in that moment to have your life radically altered. And if I can make like just kind of a dad connection here, life is like Ikea furniture. When you do it out of order, it's all kinds of crooked, all kinds of frustrating, and it causes you to have to go back to the start in order to do it again. So God says, seek, every shout first. first. Come on, shout first. first. First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto me. Well, that sounds like your opinion, Jason. Where's that in the Bible? Matthew 7, 24 to 29. I'll close on this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You have to say it like that every time. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse. Why? Because its foundation was on the rock. <laughs> but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and it pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Why? Because order is necessary. So Jesus encourages us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to us. I want to ask the question one more time. What are you seeking after today? What are you seeking after in your life? And where are you going to find that which you're seeking? Are you seeking connection 
Are you seeking purpose? Are you seeking something greater? Are you seeking affirmation? Are you seeking peace and joy? What are you seeking after? Because I want to give you the good news today. The fullness of that which we need in life is found one place and one place only, and his name is Jesus. So what's this message about? Jesus. What was it about last week? Jesus. What was it about the week before? Jesus. What was it about the week before that? Jesus. What was it about last year? Jesus. What's it going to be about next year? Jesus. What's it going to be about next week? Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's always Jesus, will always be Jesus. From now until Jesus comes back, this thing, our lives, rise and fall on Jesus. He is our rock. He is everything that we need. I'm going to ask everybody to stand in this moment.